Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Oh, everyone, I can't tell you how excited I am to bring you Michael McKnight. I have been wanting to bring him on the podcast since the very beginning. I've been following him for years. He's been an educator in New Jersey for 23 years, and he kind of has the whole self-deprecating sense of humor like I do, but he is so wise, so wise. He really has a passion for creating and supporting reclaiming environments, he calls it, for at-risk children and youth, as well as adults who serve them. He's a senior trainer for the Life Space Crisis Intervention Institute. It's an advanced therapeutic strategy for helping challenging students, and he's been involved with the program and staff for over 30 years. I remember at the very beginning, he said, look, I didn't learn this stuff through graduate school, and he'll tell you the story. I actually had to learn this all by making mistakes, and I love people that share their mistakes because I like doing that too. He's also um, the co-author on a really cool book called Unwritten, The Story of a Living System, which is about school transformation. His work currently involves the creation of school-level adversity teams and trauma-informed care in our schools and classrooms. He's also an adjunct professor at Stockton University teaching inclusive learning in education. So when we think about listening... Oh my gosh, he has so much to offer because so much of what he teaches is about inclusion and belonging. He views himself not as an expert, but as a learner and a teacher who has always enjoyed building strength-based cultures with others. So I hope he inspires you as much as he does me. His vibe is just so up my alley. So you're going to enjoy this one. Michael McKnight. Michael McKnight, I told you before we got on that I have been like stalking you on LinkedIn for four and a half, five years now, because to me, I I feel like you're like the uh, empathy whisperer for kids would be how I would say it. (laughs) Or for parents, maybe you're teaching us how to do it as parents for kids. Um, So I'm already a fan of of who you are and what you do just because of how you show up in the world. But Folks that are listening don't know who you are and what you do. So can you can you tell us a little bit about Michael McKnight? Sure. Um, you know, I, uh, I I started off as a uh, teacher of uh, what our system calls emotionally disturbed adolescents. Um, I had uh, gone to school and uh, uh, went through all my studies, got out of school, uh, got my first classroom in a self-contained classroom for emotionally troubled adolescents um, and quickly learned how bad I was at teaching these kids. Um, I had uh, literally uh, three years of what I would refer to as a complete nightmare experience. 
uh, with trying to um, uh, trying to work with kids that to me just seemed completely out of control. Uh, I remember uh, even to this day, and that's going back now, you know, close to four decades, even to this day, looking out my classroom window and, and just wishing certain kids wouldn't be on the bus that day. Um, and of course, they always were. So, um, so long story short, um, really, uh, I, I uh, was struggling a great deal and I saw a uh, an ad somewhere for a uh, program called Vision Quest. And um, Vision Quest, this is way back, was just starting and they were uh, taking juvenile delinquents out of jails and putting them on real wagon trains out uh, in Arizona. Uh, they, uh, the uh, kids would spend uh, six months on a wagon train and then, um, and then come into um, a small town in, in in Arizona, where uh, at the age of probably like 25, uh, a friend of uh, a good friend of mine now and myself became their their school experience. We were their teachers uh, for six months. And and what what uh, what was great about that experience is we is we just didn't teach with uh, these kids. We lived with them. Uh, we heard their stories. Uh, and it was like a light bulb going off. It was the first time I started to connect, you know, their histories um, with what I was seeing in, in, in classrooms uh, and really got a sense of, of what's underneath uh, the surface behavior of really hard, troubled young people. So you were you were like into ACEs before the research on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences was even out. Oh, way. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and uh, although I, you know, I didn't really put it in the terms of ACEs, I did put it in the terms of pain and still do. Uh, most of our most troubled kids are really kids that carry in uh, enormous amounts of pain. Uh, and that behavior that we see is, is uh, we call it pain-based behavior, uh, behaviors by, by kids in pain. Uh, and really, all people in pain really would would act in certain ways. Uh, you, you see those those behaviors uh, either externalized, internalized, a little of both. Uh, and and uh, and and really, uh, I look back at that experience as as uh, and then uh, what troubled kids have taught me over the decades, uh, and continue to about myself, um, about their world, and about what it really means to, um, to connect with kids and people, right? Yeah. yeah. They are people. As you're talking, I, I feel a little bit of like, ouch inside of me because I can feel the pain of those kids as, mm -hmm. and, and the pain of my, the kid that lives in me in some ways, you know? How do you, as somebody who has a short, you know, infusion in this kid's life, help transform that pain-based behavior? Because some part of me, I think, gets a little hopeless at the system's capacity to actually do that and make a difference. But you're not hopeless, or sometimes you no. are. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, there is some hope involved in teaching overall, whatever kind of kids you want to teach, right? Um, but the hopefulness that I feel is really based off of experience now and knowing, um, 
what some of those connections can turn into in knowing the re resiliency research that is out there uh, and what it says about how how really difficult kids describe their lives and what what turn them around. So I, I think there is 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 uh, good evidence of, of hopefulness uh, of the critical nature of that one connection over time in the resiliency research. And most um, most survivors talk about uh, those connections, uh, and often it's a teacher or a coach or a or, or somebody in, 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 their, in their church organization um, that really saw something within them uh, and supported it uh, and, and did it in, in, in almost a, a very natural manner. So, I mean, th that is hopeful. And uh, I think uh, that's, that's what continues to drive my work. I just got really excited and then like a thousand questions just took over my brain <laughs> as you were talking. Because I feel like I, I want to make a difference. I want the world to be better for kids. I want the world to be better for my two sons. Um, I, I'm curious, the research that, that you've been the most excited by that you've taken and applied in your work, like I, I see some of the stuff you post, but what has gotten you really juiced up and like, oh, yes, A, this is my experience or B, this taught me something new that I'm going to apply. Well, you know, it, it's funny. You stumble into things as, as you go along. Um, and I, I think um, early on, what I stumbled into were a couple of really, really good mentors that were hidden, really. This was pre-internet days. And, and it was uh, a lot, a, a little harder to find, uh, you know, really good, good work. Um, so I had gone back to school. I had a, a master's degree in special education with a, a concentration in emotionally disturbed kids. And, and I knew nothing uh, <laughs> uh, about how to do this work. I mean, I knew all the labels. I knew, you know, how kids became what. Uh, you know, but but I really did not understand uh, at all what I was looking at. I had grown up in Philadelphia, a pretty urban area, had uh, had worked on playgrounds and, and, and done that kind of work with with young people. So I always enjoyed hearing their stories, but had not connected the dots. And I, I first found uh, my first uh, great mentor, Dr. Nicholas Long, who is now probably you know, in his mid-90s. Dr. Long um, worked with uh, troubled uh, young people in Detroit decades and decades ago um, and really talked a little bit about what's underneath that behavior. He ta uh, taught a little bit of me about conflict cycles and how easy they are to get into with people as well as kids, how to break those conflict cycles and how to begin to really look for uh, some, some repetitive patterns in, in troubled kids' behaviors. Uh, so you can kind of begin to see some of their, their, the way they think, feel, and act. Um, and and, and uh, it's just fascinated me. So uh, Nick Long te uh, teaches something called life space crisis intervention, but it is really about that space um, that's in between space, uh, between people, between teachers and, and classes, between teachers and kids, between us, you know, uh, and how to develop that space 
uh, how to make that space safe, how to really um, uh, understand what emotional safety is like, what that means, uh, and and uh, and get uh, and move away from um, uh, the obedience model of of trying to handle these young people into a more uh, a, a more cooperative relationship model um, where where. I want to know you. I want to know what you're into. I want to know what you like. Um, I want to know all kinds of stuff. And, and that comes out in, in small little ways over time as we build those connections. And it's powerful. These young people have, um, have just amazing stories of resiliency in their lives. Our most troubled kids are really resilient people if we step back and use a different lens few things that I want to repeat back because, you know, I can already, I already know why I like your stuff because I too felt the same way that it can be easy to get caught up in our degrees, but it sounds like you brought this intellectual humility to it all and went, okay, I got these degrees, but this isn't where I'm learning the stuff that's going to help people. And that's certainly been true for me too. Um, So I really resonate a lot with that. The other piece that, um, came up for me though as I was listening to you is is the quality of connecting that you're describing creating this space between versus the obedience model seems like it takes more time seems like it takes more effort is it possible to deliver on that in the current school systems that we have in sort of western European culture I know that's a big question that I'm asking you but I'm just curious how you'll Play with oh, that. You know, I do play with it. And I like the word play a lot. Um, I, cause I, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, that's how humans really learn. Uh, we poo poo play, I, but there's serious play and, and, and it's fun to do. Uh, so I, I like that word. I still teach, I teach, um, uh, at the college at the university level, I teach future special ed teachers, right? Um, so it's fun, even in that environment, uh, uh, to begin to connect with, with groups of young people. And, and yeah, it takes some time, but so uh, the other uh, way takes time, too, uh, and usually doesn't get, um, get you as much uh, uh, as, as you're looking for. I, I believe that, you know, for the most part, young people learn um, not so much uh, about you know, whatever it is they're studying, they learn from teachers they like. <laughs> I mean, so, so, uh, so that really begins to, to, to drive um, their learning. And what do they like about those teachers? Uh, they, that connection, that relationship piece, uh, because their teachers like them as well. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and point that out to them. You know, point point that out in in different ways, and uh, uh, but certainly lets them know um, that they see this about them. And often uh, we kind of act as mirrors for those kids that really are trying to sort themselves out and don't. We, we never really recognize our own strengths as much as we do, but we can be mirrors for that, um, and 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 start helping young people decide you know, hey, this guy kind of thinks I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I am. Beautiful. So now I want to learn something because, you know, I, I have 11 and 13-year-old sons. They couldn't be more different. <laughs> We're living in Germany. 
And so they're learning a new language. So they've just had this foisted on them. And then lockdown happens. So they're also in all online classes, right? Mm -hmm. And in a language they don't speak. So I, it just feels like, you know, death by Zoom for them right now. Sure. Um, as parents, it seems like there's this whole other layer, right? That sometimes the demand for obedience is also the demand for ease. Like it just feels like, just stop complaining already. Just stop having needs already. Just stop <laughs> being difficult because my life is already difficult, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, we're certainly talking about parents that have a potentially more privilege than potentially other kids, uh, other families. And yet there's still this kind of hardship that's put on kids in these relationships. Mm -hmm. I know I've created hardship for my sons in the places where I haven't been empathic. What do you say to parents? Because I imagine that you can't be the only person listening to this kid. You need them to be on the team. So what do you advise? Well, certainly I'm a parent too. Uh, my kids now, uh, Maya, my daughter is uh, 29 and my son, Nate, is 24. Uh, and yeah, you know, parenting is, is absolutely uh, a, a, a task that is impossible uh, to do perfectly. And I think we've got to give ourselves a little bit of room there. Uh, I like thinking in parenting and teaching terms about the concept of rupture and repair, right? So, so there's no way uh, in any relationship of any kind of depth that there's not going to be ruptures. Um, and there will be. The idea for me then is, is can I recognize when I, when I rupture? Uh, a relationship, especially with a, a younger person in my class or, or, or my own children. And then can I, can I gather myself enough um, to, to reach out and try to make that repair? Uh, and, you know, that attunement is impossible to do perfectly with anybody. Uh, but I think it's important to look and reflect on, you know, hey, yeah, that didn't go very well. Uh, we've all had that experience. Okay, how do I how do I begin to repair that? Um, and and simple uh, you know simple ap apologies are are not uh, are, are can go a very very long way. Yes, I think I'm a good I'm a good repairer. <laughs> hey, I've, I've I think we have to be. <laughs> you know, and the um, stress that every kid is uh, and family is under uh, in this pandemic is just enormous, right? So yeah. we're seeing. We're seeing toxic levels of stress that puts people in in states of either hyper arousal or hypo arousal. Actually, I think we're seeing with kids more hypo, um, almost a, uh, a a shutting down, um, which which really uh, kind of gives you a sense of in schools. Uh, you know, we really got to take a look at um, you know what we're doing is teaching in a global pandemic. <laughs> Um, and, and we've got to take a few steps back. Um, kids are not going to lose, uh, you know, uh, years and years and never catch up. I mean, all that stuff that we, that we put on schools, uh, uh, in that assembly line kind of thinking that if they don't get this, they won't get that. That's not how people learn anyway. Um, it's, a, it's conceptually kind of off. So, 
you know, kind of beginning to, to infuse what we now know about uh, a little bit about the brain and neuroscience into teaching and learning uh, is also something that I enjoy trying to share a bit too. I, yeah, I'm totally agreement. I remember I had an article going around with a bunch of the mom friends in my town where I was previously living called we're, we're, we've got a 1950s education for a 2020 world. We're still sort mm -hmm. of doing this assembly line, as you'd said, kind of thing. And it, it can get frustrating when you're a therapist and you're like, wait a minute, you're not teaching my kid how to regulate their emotions. You're not teaching them conflict. Cool. I want them to learn that stuff. I don't They'll learn. We talk about history. Like we're, we read books together. We can do that part. But when they're having a fight with their classmate, you're telling me that you just give them a timeout and you don't teach them how to resolve that? Come on. You know, I, it yeah. drove me nuts. That was super hard. But, you know, I hear so much optimism from you. Like, I get, I get very curmudgeonly about all this stuff, Michael. And you don't <laughs> seem curmudgeonly. You seem like you're just staying the course, steady Eddie. You know, I'm going to keep doing my thing. How, how, what is it that you've cultivated inside that you haven't gotten curmudgeonly about it all? Um, well, you know, I, I really think most people still go into teaching with the idea of trying to help kids. Um, I don't think we're doing a great job of training teachers to be in today's classrooms. I don't think we've ever done a great job of that. You know, we, we continue to focus on just content knowledge which is not the issue in teaching. Most teachers know the content uh, and we lose the other piece of really uh, the art of teaching, um, and, which is really connection, um, which is really relationship driven. Um, we learn best from people that we connect with um, and that whole piece has disappeared. Um, and yet, you know, so we, we focus on credentializing, we focus on content, and then we wonder why teachers are in the classroom and that's all they do. But I found that teachers, and I do train a lot of teachers too now, uh, and, and are very open to some of these suggestions uh, because teaching's hard. Uh, you've got, you know, 25, 30 kids in a room. Um, you're like a weatherman in a classroom. How do I create the weather in this space uh, for all these folks um, so that, so that um, we can both and all be in that state of relaxed alertness where the brain actually works best? So, so how do I begin to do that? How do I connect this content that, that I have to deliver with anything they're interested in, right? How do I weave that together? And how do I do that in some high school cases, seeing, you know, 100 kids a day? How, you know, how, how's that even possible? So I, I think uh, uh, for the most part, I'm hopeful because we have teachers that go in there and try that every day. Um, it, you know, and, and they're looking, I think, uh, for different ways to do this work um, because they want to actually be successful. I, I, I know that there are some teachers that, that uh, you know, kind of get burnt out and kind of just uh, are putting in time. But that's still, to me, a, a small minority of people that go into this work. I loved this phrase that you just used. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to use it all the time now, but I will give you credit. I love relaxed alertness. Oh yeah, my whole body well, just loves that, that phrase. From somebody too. So, but it's um, you know it really is. Uh, 
you know, the best way. And, and we do fun things. Uh, my partner and I, we've written a couple books. Her name's Dr. Lori Desitel. Um, she uh, works at Butler University and, and, uh, and teaches a course in educational neuroscience. Um, and I've weaved that into our work too. Uh, so how do I begin to, to uh, uh, create that state? You know, how do I calm the nervous system down? Uh, we've got to weave breath and movement into our classrooms. We can't sit, sit all day. Um, and and try to do that. So so and they're fun activities um, that we can do to really teach even kids about how their brains and bodies work. So um, we're doing that uh, as we create what what we're calling school level resiliency teams. Um, we meet with teams from schools, um, share a lot in three days, and have them go back and seed that work in their schools. So we're working from the bottom up, uh, seeding schools with, uh, with good information, including ACEs, uh, which is still not known by all teachers. That work's still kind of separate in, in a lot of piles. So what does toxic stress do to kids? What is trauma? Uh, all those kind of things. And what's it look like? And then what can you do about it? Yeah. For I realize that you and I started talking about ACEs as shorthand, but for those that are listening, ACEs is Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it's Nadine, pr- primarily Nadine Burke-Harris's work, although I imagine she had a team of people, but studying the long-term impact of acute stress on kids um, and their health, their physical health, not just their mental health. Yeah, there's a great little uh, film out, a DVD. It's only about an hour, It's uh, and we've shown that to uh, to many schools, uh, uh, and, and just even in the community, we've even shown it on Facebook. Uh, it's called resilience, the biology of stress and the science of hope, uh, which really talks about the story of ACEs, um, and where it came from. And you'll see Nadine Burke in that, in that story. Uh, it's a real good overview, uh, of just what it is, uh, and what it does to the brains and bodies of young people. So, uh, uh, that's a nice thing to share with teachers, even community members, parents I've shown it to, uh, church organizations, um, and then even really have, a, you know, short discussions about, you know, take a look at your own life through this lens. Totally. All I'm thinking about is this is what I do all day long with couples, what you're talking about, because <laughs> they don't know about this stuff. I'm teaching them how to right. regulate and, you know, rupture, repair, reattune, et cetera. Um, you know, I wasn't going to ask you this, but it just popped in just now. And, and, it, and it occurred to me because I'm thinking about this also in this pandemic time. My kids are on tech devices all freaking day. And one of, my, one of my sons is on social media. He's actually a different, he's 13 going on 95. Like he, he makes Instagram accounts. And then I shouldn't say this because Instagram's going to come after. And then he gets a bunch of followers and then sells it for money. Hey. <laughs> he has his own little, you know, there, entrepreneurial there spirit. I'm go. like, okay. Uh, so it's not really, he's not seduced into that whole, this is bringing me personal value and self-worth. He's into, mm-hmm. I'm going to build a strategy here, get this account to have a lot of followers and get someone to buy it from me. So, but my other kid is, is super addicted to technology and video games. And I said to my husband, I said, we never thought we were going to be these parents. He's like, no. And yet 
I try to inform folks. I'm like, you know, it's the younger kids that are struggling with loneliness more than we always think it's senior citizens. I'm like, no, the research doesn't bear that out. And I'm just curious in the classroom, how are you thinking about technology and self-regulation? How are you thinking about technology and learning? How are you thinking about technology and human connection? Big questions, I know, but I, I imagine you're going to have something really fun to say. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, the issue with technology is, is, is one, you know, I mean, we still have a few schools that are trying to uh, pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, and, and kids now can, uh, can text in their pockets without even looking at, you know, their phones. So I don't think we, I, I think that cat's way out of the bag. Um, and we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it uh, as early as, as preschool in our, in our schools, the use of technology. Um, I, I think it, it, it's a great tool, but I think it's incumbent on adults to try to, to buffer um, uh, kids from it. And I don't see technology as being a specific kid problem. I think it's an adult problem, too, <laughs> um, because, you, you know, I, and because and, we it's so easy to get caught up in, in it to, to have to respond when you get a text message. Um, it becomes a, an extension of self almost, uh, where where kids are going to sleep with their phones. Adults are too, and they they can't be disconnected. I think you know part of what we got to take a look at is is what is that doing to you? Are you comfortable enough with that? Uh, are you in touch enough with your nervous system of saying, well, why do I feel like I always need to be? in that sense of alarm and, and might miss something. Um, or, you know, and, and, and we've got to really take a look at that. I don't have the answer to that. Uh, but I think bringing some mindful practices into schools um, is, is not a bad start. Uh, and how we teach kids to regulate uh, and how we teach groups of people even to regulate um, can begin to help with some of that, I believe. I love how you're, when I ask you a question, you don't get dogmatic about anything. And I love this. I, there's an invitation for inquiry that I'm going to use now in my own life, because ever since things got really funky with our politics in the United States, I noticed that I'm more, you know, connected to my device and late night doom scrolling, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but I love this inquiry, this invitation. You said, you know, what is that like for you to constantly fear missing out on some information or to be in that alertness to need to respond? And just when you asked that, I had a response in my whole body. I'm like, right. I don't like that feeling. No, you know, and, uh, and that feeling, um, you know, has, has been generated in, in many ways. We're doing everything faster and faster and faster, whether you know, whether it's on our phones, our computers, our, our TVs, our 24-7, you know, and, 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 and really, uh, you know, we're, we're asking, you know, can I buffer some of this, not only from my children, but from myself? Um, how do I begin to do some of that buffering um, and, and, and get, get some quiet time? Because when you, when you look at connection, Connection is about some, I've got to be settled enough to listen to you. I've got to get my stuff out of the way, calm myself down, empty of sorts, 
to really be able to connect and listen with somebody. And that's hard to do. Harder now. I mean, what I hear you saying is it's, I mean, it's revolutionary now because it's just not even part of the culture anymore. No, but I think it's a recognized gift when somebody gives it to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I also, I'm, I'm going to interject myself. I also sure. have found that it's quite pleasurable to give that gift. I think that sometimes we talk about hearing somebody and settling down as some kind of chore. And I've been trying to say, nah, 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 nah. Just, just do it a few times. It's actually just as great for you as the other person. And, and I think there could be a little too much in the psychobabble language that focuses on how to be a good listener and it turns it into this task or this chore. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not a project that you're trying to get done. It's not something you're trying to do right. It feels really damn good <laughs> to listen to someone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think uh, I'm always fascinated um, uh, at, the, at, at the stories underneath some people's lives. And I mean, young people will tell you their story if, I mean, you're not, you don't have to pry, but you could connect a relationship and, and, you know, I always encourage journaling in classrooms and, 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 and ways for kids to get in touch with themselves. I mean, I'm always cautious about what my boundaries are and asking permission for, you know, hey, would you like me to read this? Would you like me to respond? Those kind of things. But, but I think for the most part, uh, yeah, it's a great, you know, there's many different ways to do that. And, you know, you're, you, the other thing I think we have to get out of our head, especially in schools, is, is this isn't about fixing you. I'm just, it's just about really getting to know you and, and seeing who you are and, and, uh, and, 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 and that dynamic affects me as much as you, uh, maybe me more than you. It's, you're, you're preaching to the choir here on this one. I mean, it's the number one shift that has humbled me. And I, I get on a soapbox a little bit. I'll try to not be too soapboxy about it because I love yeah. the way that you just do it as an invitation. But I think therapists and coaches and anyone in healing professions need to look at that. Because when you show up in any kind of interaction thinking that your job is to fix someone, they are already feeling that you're seeing them through the lens of broken. And that is the first intervention you're making. You're saying, you're broken. Yeah. And that sucks. That is not the, yeah, that that's is not the recipe. <laughs> that is not the recipe for, uh, yeah, and it's humbling. It's been really, really humbling for me as a clinician, for sure. And, and I think it's changed me over the years. I, I, I take a great deal of delight at learning from my own clients, the ways sure. that they've organized their lives, their creative solutions to problems that I would have never dreamed up and celebrating that with them. And they're like, wait, you're telling me what's right about me. I'm like, yeah, because there's so much. It's so yeah. cool to be on the receiving end of this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Love this. Well, I know we're near the end of time. Um, we have this little ritual that we do, how we end, which is I kind of get out of the way and give you the mic and let you speak to all those 8,000 folks like me that sit on sidewalks around the world. And you can say whatever you want, but usually it's in the form of a words of wisdom or a wish. 
just directly to, to those people that just have been sitting out there year after year, sometimes freezing their buns off on public sidewalks? Well, you know, a couple of things that I think I would, would share, um, and uh, certainly as humbly as possible. Um, you know, again, um, uh, I'm honored that most of what I've learned is from others, um, including uh, including the young people I've, I've spent time trying to work with and, and hopefully not uh, doing a little bit more good than, than bad for them. Um, but at our core, we're really feeling creatures who think. Human beings are feeling creatures who think. Um, and, and, uh, and we have to uh, be able to go into uh, emotions um, because they drive learning. Uh, they drive attention. They drive everything we do. Uh, and yet in, in, in many of our areas, uh, we have kind of disconnected that um, and, and kept it, uh, you know, uh, this, this uh, illusion that, uh, that teaching and learning is a purely intellectual pursuit. Uh, it is not. Um, you know, I think we can look at uh, what we do, uh, whether as parents or as teachers, uh, that relationship, protecting that relationship is critical. Um, because that is how we get kids uh, in the with my teacher's lens uh, to go do goofy things like how to divide fractions. Like who who would who would want to do that or or or, or learn uh, complex algebra problems uh, without that connection? Um, many of our kids uh, are there in body um, and not mind, um, and and our schools. Uh, need to be able to shift from their current model of thinking into something much more alive um, and much more um, uh, whole and natural. Uh, and I think we'll get there uh, because know, that this whole test and measure culture is starting to die out. I'm starting to finally hear things about social emotional learning. Uh, I think, you know, with time, um, we may begin to, to get some wisdom um, within that, uh, that realm and really begin to say, well, wait a second, what, what is really important here? What do we need? Beautiful. This was so fun. Hey, how can people oh, find cool. out more, more about you? We'll put a bunch of information in our show notes, but is there a, a place? That, I, I know you have an older blog that I've read some stuff on. Um, yeah, not it? yet. I have, really don't have a place. Um, uh, where where I where I can connect like that? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook a little I bit. I really found a diamond in the rough. I feel so proud. I feel and, proud uh, that you don't have all the fancy stuff. <laughs> no, you know I really don't. Uh, and uh, so so uh, you know I I just uh, kind of uh, enjoy being able to connect with others. I mean, look at this. I it's just amazing the time we're in, right? I mean, how you know you're you're in, in Germany. A, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just unbelievable to uh, to even you know envision this, uh, and and I think th certain things have their own time uh, and way about them, and uh, and uh, and you can't force this kind of work anyway. Um, yeah. uh, but I think uh, you set some seeds and you see what happens. Great, I'm glad to know that you're out there planting seeds. Thanks for being with us, Michael. It was great to Thanks. get to connect with you. 
Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of God.